0: To be continued. Perhaps you have encountered those words at the end of a, a riveting book or a show or a movie. Uh, perhaps they've frustrated you because you actually would like to know how the story continues. Uh, perhaps they've exhilarated you. They've encouraged you to go out and to uh, pick up the next copy of that book in the series or to, to buy the next DVD and follow along and find out what happened next. To be continued. Well, this morning, we begin our study in the book of Acts, and what we discover with the very opening words in this book is that it is a story that is continuing. It's picking up where a previous story had left off, and I want you to see this for yourself. So if you haven't done so already, go ahead and open your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter Chapter 1, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Acts beginning on page 909. 909. And while you're turning to Acts, chapter 1, let me stick just a few questions in your mind. I want you to be puzzling through as we study through this first chapter of Acts. As we encounter God's Word this morning, I think we need to be asking ourselves a few questions. Questions like these Have I embraced the mission of Jesus? Have I embraced the one who came to save me from my sins? Or another question. Have I been engaged in the mission of Jesus? Have I been pouring out effort, either through prayer or through proclamation or through patronage? Have I been seeking to further the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ? Pouring out that effort to tell others... That Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. I want to stick these questions in your mind because this is what the book of Acts is all about. The book of Acts is about Jesus continuing his mission through his church. If you want a sentence that summarizes the whole book of Acts, I think that's it. Jesus is continuing his mission through his church, through his people. So, I hope by now you've arrived at Acts chapter 1. If, if that's the summary of the book of Acts as a whole, that Jesus is continuing his mission through his church, then what's Acts chapter 1 about? How does it contribute to that message? Well, I think Acts chapter 1 is about this. Jesus' disciples are prepared for mission. So if you're looking for a single sentence to summarize this sermon and the thrust of Acts chapter 1, that's it. Jesus' disciples are prepared for mission. We're going to see in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, that Jesus' mission continues. It's going to be point 1 for you note-takers. Jesus' mission continues. That's the first three verses. Point number two, Jesus prepares His disciples for mission. We're going to find that in verses 4 through 11. And then in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, we're going to see Jesus' disciples prepare for mission. So the disciples themselves are going to get ready to begin to take this good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So in this chapter, we see that Jesus' disciples are prepared for mission. Let's begin with our first point where Luke is telling us that this is a story continuing, that Jesus' mission, it continues. Follow along now as you read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them. After his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see, this is an incredibly exciting way to begin the book of Acts. These verses are teeming with information and implication. First, we notice that this is not the first book, right? This is the story continued. We, we know that this is not the first book because we learn that Luke is the first book because it's addressed to the same recipient, that we find here. So if you can, keep one finger here and turn to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 to 4. That's on page 855 of the Bibles provided. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You'll see when you get there that this is the story that Luke first began. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Both the gospel of Luke and Acts, they're addressed to the same person, this person Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus seems to have been an an individual that that Luke was acquainted with. Perhaps he was a close friend. And based on how Luke addresses him here as most excellent Theophilus, uh, some scholars have wondered whether or not that Theophilus was a a patron of Luke's work, a a benefactor trying to get Luke to write these two volumes. We we don't really know for sure. But what we do know is that his name, Theophilus, it means lover of God. So we might reasonably conclude that he was a, a believer and a follower of Jesus, and Luke wanted Theophilus, as you can see here in, in the beginning of Luke's gospel, he wanted Theophilus to have certainty about those things that were handed down. That's a goal for Luke in volume 1. He, he wants Theophilus to have certainty about what he's been told about Jesus. Now, if you've kept one finger uh, in, in the book of Acts, go ahead and turn back to chapter 1. Go ahead, and, that's 909 of the Bible's provided in case you lost your place. You'll see another intriguing phrase that signals something of Luke's goal here. In Acts, in this volume two, you see there in the very first verse we read, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, and there's that curious little word, began to do and teach. So Luke, he's signaling to us and to Theophilus that he wants to unpack what Jesus continued to do and teach. So if his first volume was about what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, his incarnation to his ascension, well, then this next volume is going to be about what Jesus is doing even as he reigns in heaven among his people on earth. How Jesus is furthering the good news that salvation has come. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. We're going to see how the ministry of Jesus' incarnation, the proclamation of his incarnation, his life, his death, his teaching, his resurrection, how this is furthered among his people and what they proclaim. And notice that Luke is talking about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Well, what did Jesus do and teach? What were the things he taught? One of the things we need to recognize is that Jesus' uh, ministry, what he did and what he taught, are intimately related. So in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost. That's what he came to do, and that's what he taught. That's what his mission was about. And so we're going to continue to see that this is what Acts is about. As the apostles share this good news that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That this is what he taught he came to do, and this is what he actually did and accomplished. Now I should probably address something I've been asserting or assuming here. And that's that Luke's the author of Acts. Um, Christians for a long time, very early on, even since Irenaeus, I believe, have believed and concluded that Luke is the author of Acts. And how they arrive at that is that when you're reading through the book of Acts, once Luke joins Paul in the mission of proclaiming the gospel, we start seeing these we phrases. We went here. We traveled there. And So Christians have long concluded uh, that Luke is traveling with Paul and that he's the author of this book, an eyewitness of the things Paul is saying and doing. And there's been very little debate about, uh, at least in Christian history, about whether or not Luke is the author of of Luke and Acts. It's been very widely received and welcomed. And this this is really probably a fresh writing, too, a very fresh history. Um, By the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome, but he's not dead. Christian tradition holds that uh, Paul probably died somewhere around 64 A.D., So if this book is written before Paul's death, uh, then this is a mere 30 years after Jesus' own death and resurrection. Luke is riding hot on the heels of what's taking place in the history of the Christian church. And here in these three verses, these first three verses, we we find uh, something wonderful that's taking place. Luke is providing overlap with what he taught in his gospel uh, and and something of a, a recap as well. He provides us overlap in his gospel because you'll remember that Luke's gospel ends with Jesus ascension but we in Acts don't get Jesus ascension until verse 11 so there's a little bit of of recap of what's taken place between the time of of, uh, Jesus resurrection and his ascension as well but if you notice these short pithy phrases and words Luke is summarizing everything he taught in his gospel. Just begin to to read through, right? Verse 1, we see that Jesus did things and taught things. He's reminding us of of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, We remember that Jesus was taken up. He's telling us about Jesus' ascension. Um, He gave commands through the Holy Spirit. He chose apostles. Jesus gathered 12 men with him. Um, he, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. So Luke is telling us that Jesus died and that he was raised And he he provides, Jesus provided them with many proofs. Because, of course, it's not every day that someone is raised from the grave. Many proofs would be necessary, important, helpful for undergirding our faith. Uh, Not only does he provide many proofs, he he appeared to them for 40 days and taught them in that period before his ascension about the kingdom of God. This is what Luke wants us to see in these first three verses. That Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost through the proclamation of His life, death, and resurrection is how this mission is going to continue. Seeking and saving the lost through the proclamation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is how the kingdom of God is going to be inaugurated, restored, and expand. The question that these verses then confront us with is have we we embraced Jesus in all of His saving power and glory? Have we delighted in the fact that His mission was to seek and to save people like you and me? The lost, sinners, those who have sinned and strayed from the Holy God. Jesus has come to find us and save us. Has Jesus found you? Has He saved you? Friend, if you're here this morning, if you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ... Then, this is the absolute most important thing that you can think about and hear from God's word this morning that Jesus' mission continues and He can save you today. He still seeks sinners like you and me. Is He coming after you? Is He confronting you with your sin, showing you how you've rebelled against God? Is He exposing that in your heart and life? Is He convicting you through His Holy Spirit? If he is, then you need to know he also holds out a word of comfort to you. He says, I've not only come to seek you, but also to save you. You you cannot make yourself righteous in God's sight. Not all your prayers and sighs and tears can spare you from the wrath of God. But Jesus can. Jesus can save you from God's wrath. It's what he came to do. He came to live a perfectly righteous life, the life that we've not lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He came to lay down His life to suffer the punishment due to our sins for all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. So He lived, He loved, He laid down His life, and He was lifted up from the grave on the third day so that we might be forgiven and know that if we embrace Jesus in faith, we can be received and accepted as righteous in God's sight. Friend, is Jesus come to seek you, Have you embraced Him and His mission to seek and save a sinner like you? Turn from your sins and trust in Him today. He came to seek and to save the lost. Let Him seek you and find you and run to Him. Well, Luke wants us to see that Jesus' mission continues. That this is what is going to take place and press forward. But he also wants us to see Jesus prepare His disciples for mission. That's what we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. And this is our second point. We want to see how Jesus prepares His disciples for mission. Follow along now as I read verses 4 to 11. Verse 4. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, And a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Well, here we see Jesus prepare His disciples for mission. And if we wanted to put it very briefly, in sum... Jesus tells them where to be in Jerusalem and what to do. To wait and then to witness. Jesus' preparation begins with location. Jesus wants his disciples to remain in Jerusalem. And this is an important instruction for these men of Galilee. A natural inclination for these men might have been to return home after their teacher, their Savior, had left. But Jesus doesn't want them to return home. He wants them to stay. He wants them to stay in Jerusalem because what he has begun in Jerusalem will move forward into another phase in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit empowered; uh, the Holy Spirit will be poured out, and mission and ministry will go out from there. And and as I as just personally thought about this command from Jesus this past week, I was I was encouraged. When you think about Jerusalem as a place, it was hostile to Jesus, right? It was where Jesus was arrested, where he was tried, where he was crucified, put to death. But this is where, in a place of hostility, God is going to begin this work of expanding his kingdom through his disciples. I wonder if you think about the place that we live in as a place of hostility, whether or not it's hard. Uh, Some of you have referred to our locale as Babylon. Maybe it's a difficult place to live, a difficult place to further the gospel. But what we need to remember is that hostility is no barrier to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can further His work wherever He is so pleased to do. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if you're thinking about fleeing this place because of the hostility, the difficulty, the hardness, uh, consider maybe the Lord has placed you here to use you to carry the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth and even to here as well. Uh, We have much hope. We have the Holy Spirit with us in empowering us for mission in Jesus' name. Jesus he wants his disciples to stay here in Jerusalem because the Father will keep his promise and pour out his Holy Spirit. God always keeps his promises. And so this is a great encouragement to Jesus' disciples. Well, what promise does, does Jesus have in mind as he's talking to his disciples? Well, there are several places where we see this promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out, turn up in the Old Testament. One of them is in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, where we read, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and, uh, from you and from, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit will be poured out. In fact, an, another prophecy we get comes up on, um, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches a famous sermon based upon uh, Joel, the prophet Joel. He writes in Joel chapter 2 verse 28 and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Jesus, he's he's telling his disciples this. God is going to fulfill his promises. The locus of that fulfillment is going to be in Jerusalem, and I want you to stay there. Jesus even adds his his encouragement uh, to the Father's promises. And what we need to recognize is that these Old Testament promises were linked to the the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. In the prophet Ezekiel, for example, the the nation Israel was in exile and as good as dead. And in order for the nation to be restored, God had to pour out His Spirit. Remember I quoted from Ezekiel 36 just a moment ago. We finish that chapter and you move into the next chapter, you run into Ezekiel 37, and there we have this vision of a valley of dry bones. It's a picture of the nation of Israel dead and what has to happen god has to pour out his spirit and bring the nation back to life to restore the nation that's a, a picture of the kingdom of israel being restored and this is the mission that the apostles in the church are going to embark on and the only way they will be able to pursue this mission is through the power of the holy spirit that's why these disciples ask there in verse six lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to israel Think about what's been going on. Jesus has been teaching his disciples for 40 days about the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 3. Combine this with the promises, right, of the outpouring of the Spirit, verses 4 and 5, and the resurrected king himself standing right there in front of him. Their question is not a non sequitur, as some of us suppose. It's a natural question. Now, the disciples do seem to misunderstand that Jesus' kingdom is, is not going to be a, a political, territorial, and national kingdom. But their pursuit of this question concerning the kingdom, it's not wrong-headed, right? Especially with our king and savior, the, the son of David, standing right there before them. Jesus, he he doesn't refuse to answer the disciples' question, but he does redirect their focus concerning timing and territory. You see here, the disciples, they they're really interested in timing. Is it going to happen now? Well, Jesus... He's not so much interested in timing at this very moment. He's interested in them telling the good news of his salvation. He wants them to be his witnesses. And in effect, he tells his disciples that they must leave the timing to God the Father. That's fixed by his own authority. As we've learned from our study in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will return at the Father's command, at the Father's pleasure. And that's when the kingdom will be most fully and finally restored. But right now, the the work of the restoration of the kingdom, the beginnings of that work is going to begin by them taking the good news to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus wants to redirect their attention to that mission before them. But Jesus also, he, he redirects their focus concerning what territory they ought to be concerned with. They needed to have a focus larger than the national and territorial landscape of Israel. Jesus wants his disciples to begin witnessing in Jerusalem, but then bursting out of Jerusalem and going to Judea and Samaria and all the way to the end of the earth. Jesus wanted his disciples then. and I would suggest to you that he wants his disciples now to have concerns for a mission that are broader than their homeland. This is the very trajectory that the book of Acts is going to take. We're going to see the mission continue precisely in accordance with the the program that Jesus announces there in verse 8. You can think of this Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. as kind of the program that the book of Acts is going to follow. The book of Acts is going to end with mission having reached Rome in the Apostle Paul, which in their day was kind of the the end of the earth. It was the end of the earth uh, kind of geographically, but metaphorically too, right? Rome was a, a metropolis which housed people from all the nations of the earth. Was it's not only the end of kind of the known world at the time, that's where you stepped off the end of the known world to go into the unknown world and explore. Well, this is what Jesus wants his disciples to be thinking about. He wants them not just telling the gospel in Jerusalem, but even to the ends of the earth. And that is because Jesus' authority is not limited to some small sliver of land in the Middle East. No, all authority in on heaven in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And the church is to continue to extend the rule and reign of Jesus by seeing sinners come to repent and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first fruits of the kingdom, repentance and faith. Now, we as a congregation seek to cultivate a wider view of the expansion of Jesus' kingdom simply by what we do each Lord's Day here. So every Sunday during the pastoral prayer, I'm praying for some nation, just praying alphabetically, through the nations. Last week we prayed for Japan. Uh, this week we prayed for Jordan. And next week should the Lord Jesus, Terry, we'll pray for Kazakhstan. Uh, we're just going to keep praying for God's work to keep going around the world. And I hope that this week in and week out broadens our vision to remind us that there are Christians beyond Arlington, beyond Northern Virginia, but all around the world. And we want to see Jesus worshiped everywhere. For that's where he deserves to be worshiped. Everywhere. And and children. Let me encourage you, children, youth, young adults, let me encourage you to perhaps prod your parents on uh, to pray for the work of Jesus around the globe. A number of you have come up to me at the door after the service and talked about how you desire to share the Lord Jesus. I am grateful for that. Clearly, the Lord has given you a heart to share Jesus. Keep at it and pray. Pray that Jesus' name would be made known among the nations Ask your parents to find some prayer resource like Operation World, which can help you as a family pray for other nations around the world and what work is going on there. Spur your parents on to lead you guys in praying for the work of Jesus around the world. And we should also appreciate Jesus' wonderful little phrase there, my witnesses. Did you notice that? My witnesses. Jesus owns his disciples with all of their frailties and flaws. Christian, he owns you and your witnessing to him with all of your frailties and flaws. He loves you and he loves to see you make his name known among the nation. He owns us with all of our frailties and flaws and he he delights to work through us. And this shows us his power, doesn't it? We know how weak we are as his vessels. Uh, He doesn't save sinners through our clever witness No, he saves sinners by clearing away our glaring flaws and presenting the wonderful character of his person to the lost. Jesus so owns us, and this ought to keep us humble and fixed on his mission. We must be his witnesses. We don't have authorization for anything else. We must realize that the moment we start proclaiming anything or anyone else other than the Savior, other than Jesus is the savior of the world, the healer of the nations, that it is at that moment that we're no longer his witnesses. We're witnessing for someone else. We must pray and purpose to keep the mission and ministry of this church focused and fixed on being Jesus' witnesses and not a variety of causes and cares that the world has. The institutions of the world can address many issues in our society, but there is only one institution that can address and announce the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the unique mission of the church. And we have to keep it at the center of our mission. We can get distracted by a lot of other things. But the only thing that the church is uniquely set aside for is proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must remain focused and fixed on that. We must be His witnesses. And in fact, this language of witnessing, it's reminiscent, right, of what we read earlier from Isaiah 44, where Isaiah, the Lord, we were told, he'd pour out his spirit, he'd appoint his people, and that they should be his witnesses. And Isaiah had in view a renewed and restored people witnessing to the nations, telling them that the salvation of God had come. Jesus is saying to his disciples that God is going to do what he promised to do, and he's going to do it through you. What a daunting task they have before them to make the kingdom of God known to the whole world. And what a comfort Jesus gives them when he tells them that the Spirit will empower them. Pursuing mission without the power of the Spirit is impossible. Pursuing the mission of Jesus without the power of the Spirit is impossible. And this is no less true in our day. And this is why we must plead for God to pour out his Spirit among us and to pour out his Spirit when we evangelize. Do you, do you pray before you get together uh, for a cup of coffee with your unbelieving friend or, or family member? Do you pray, Lord, would you pour out your spirit in their heart? Would you draw them to Jesus Christ? When you, when you go to meet with a coworker, a family member, a friend for, for dinner or coffee, pray that the Lord would pour out his spirit. And that he would empower you to be his witness for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, right on the heels of Jesus' promise that the spirit would come to earth, Jesus Leaves earth. Did you notice that? Jesus, we we're told he ascended into heaven. And friend, if you're you're here this morning, you're not used to reading the, the Bible, hearing it taught like this. Uh, this seems, and if this seems strange, so let me try and answer just a few questions about what's taking place here. First, did Jesus really ascend into heaven? Yes, yes, he really did. He returned to heaven, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes, he came from heaven, and yes, he returned to heaven. Second, do Christians really believe this? Yes, we really do. Uh, There were nearly a dozen eyewitnesses to his ascension. And it's important. It's an important part of our Christian faith. In fact, Jesus foretold his ascension in the Gospel of John nearly nine times. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus even told his disciples that it was to their advantage that he goes away, that he would leave them. For when he left them, he would send the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, to them. So it was necessary for Jesus to return to the Father. And this is all necessary preparation for the disciples' mission. Jesus had to leave their side to send the Spirit to their side. And it's, this is not a, a form of, of space travel. It's not a form of uh, beam me up, Scotty. This is the real reception of the Son of God into heaven where he now rules and reigns. And one of the things that's interesting to me about Jesus' ascension is just how minimal the details are. Right, it's basically a half a verse. It's a mere 13 words. If you're trying to make a story up like this, if you're trying to make up a fake story, you would like embellish these details. But Luke, he just tells us the story very simply and straightforward, and he keeps moving on because this is what really happened. And our text also reminds us that not only did Jesus leave, but that he'll also return. And the disciples their their eyes are kind of fixed on the skies and these two men in white robes come and stand beside them and uh, this is reminiscent of the angel's appearance at the tomb in luke's gospel uh, where they they told the disciples why why are you looking here he's he's not here why do you look for the living among the dead he's he's risen well these these two men perhaps angels are saying why why are you looking up the skies he's He's, he's gone into the heavens. He's, he's going to come. He's going to return in that way too, actually. He's going to return with clouds of glory. He's going to return visibly, physically, bodily. He's going to return and fully and finally restore the kingdom. In the New Testament, this proclamation that Jesus will return is a, is a powerful prod to encourage us in our evangelism. Jesus' return is a a comfort to Christians. We can endure a lot knowing that our Savior, the judge of the world, is going to come. He's going to right all wrongs. He's going to restore us uh, to to, to glory with the Father. This is a great comfort to us. But it's also a challenge to us to be about our master's business while Jesus is away. Right. So next week, Lord willing, our brother Mark is going to preach from Matthew chapter 25, verses 13 to 40. And and there we'll be reminded that Jesus is returning and that we ought to be laboring for our master. He expects faithfulness from us during the time between his ascension and the time of his return. Will we be found faithful? When Jesus returns, you will enter, Christian. you will enter into the joy of your master. So you should be busy about the work of helping others enter into the joy of Jesus as master and Lord as well. In, in Acts chapter one, verses 4 to 11, Jesus he, he prepares his disciples for mission. Right? He does so by commanding them to remain in Jerusalem. Where they need to be, they need to wait to receive the fulfillment of the Father's promise, the Holy Spirit. He answers their questions about restoration of the kingdom by redirecting their focus away from timing and away from territory. Uh, or to actually a broader territory. There to be his witnesses, not just a, a small territory, but throughout the whole earth, everywhere they can find terra firma, solid ground. There to be his witnesses and Jesus, he's reassuring them that the Spirit's going to empower them in this mission. And he's received into heaven so they can send this Spirit not many day from, days from now. They can pick up the mission and press on. Well, Jesus has prepared His disciples for mission. And now we see the disciples themselves prepare for mission as well. This is what we're going to look at in verses 12 to 26. In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, we see the disciples, they're prepared for mission. This is our third point. Follow along now So I read verses 12 to 26. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Keldema, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Well, in these verses, we see the disciples themselves take a number of steps to prepare themselves for mission. They uh, return to Jerusalem, they regather, they rededicate themselves to prayer. And while they're together in Jerusalem, Peter, he reflects upon the Old Testament scriptures and sees a need. The apostles need to appoint another apostle. And so they do. They, they recognize another one among them. Uh, you, you, it's important for us to notice that Jesus' disciples were obedient to his command to return to Jerusalem. Jesus, remember, he told them to go to Jerusalem to wait for the Father to send the promised Holy Spirit. And that's precisely what they do. Now, it may be cliche to say that the only way to be happy in Jesus is to trust and obey. But it's true. This is a mark of Jesus' disciples in every age. They hear and they heed the commands of Jesus. Yes, we will do that imperfectly, but it will be our impulse. And that's what the disciples did. They obeyed Jesus. It was their heart's desire, and it should be our heart's desire to do what Jesus commands. Not only do the disciples return to Jerusalem in obedience to Jesus, but they regather. Uh, They return to the upper room and they regather. And I think this, too, is also an impulse of disciples of Jesus. They want to gather regularly with his people for prayer and for preaching. And Luke, he deliberately lists the 11 remaining uh, apostles. And this is really going to set up Peter's speech here in these verses. Or perhaps we could even say sermon uh, in a few short verses. We're told that others are also present too. Luke tells us that the women who followed Jesus were there and so was Jesus' mother Mary and his uh, brothers. From Mark's gospel, we learn that Jesus had Four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And this, uh, this makes the Protestant in me want to go on a, a diatribe about the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church's claim to the perpetual virginity of Mary. But we should really just press on. Um, what we should really appreciate now is that um, this group of early Christians, how they're described. Do you see how they're described? Uh, what they devote themselves to? They push, right? They pray until something happens, as a friend told me recently. They, they wait and they pray. They devote themselves to prayer. That waiting is, is involving praying. Have you, have you found that to be true in your own life? That your waiting often involves praying. And, and it cannot be by accident that prayer is held side by side with the fact that they're in one accord. Have you ever found that to be true with your brothers and sisters in the Lord? That, that prayer kind of draws you together and, and, and gives you unity together. I have a friend that says the church that prays together stays together. I think there's probably some truth to that. When you're hounding heaven in in prayer with a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, it's hard to be opposed to them and at odds with them. And I've been so encouraged by our Sunday evening prayer meetings of of late. It's a joy to open the scriptures with you, to read God's word together, to, to give ourselves to prayer. And as we devote ourselves to prayer, it strikes me that the Lord is is growing our our love for one another. That's what this idea of being in in one accord is. There's a, a unity that's emerging and growing. So prayer and unity, they so often go hand in hand. And Christian, I want to encourage you that if you feel yourself drifting from your brothers and sisters in Christ, Purpose to draw near to them in prayer. Get get together for a cup of coffee. uh, Pray with your small group, with your community group. Pray with us on Sunday nights. Pray with other believers. That's part of how I think the Lord can can draw your heart nearer to God's people. Now, I, I would not be surprised if the disciples in this upper room were especially praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had been talking to them about, and for the coming of the kingdom of God, as Jesus had been speaking to them about for those 40 days. This is how you wait. You pray. And it's in the midst of this time of waiting, they're really praying until something happens, that Peter, he stands up, you see there, and he addresses this gathering. Luke tells us there's about 120 people present. We don't really know the significance of that. Other than that, there are about 120 people present. And so Peter, he gives this address that's focused on the lost apostle and looking for the next apostle. So we get a reflection on Judas and the Old Testament scriptures and the need to find another one. And, and it's imperative. It's a need. There's a, a kind of a must. This needs to take place, a uh, sense in this text. Peter's persuaded from the Old Testament scriptures that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand concerning, uh, by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Peter tells the assembly that this was all part of God's plan. He quotes Psalm 69, verse 25, and in your, your Bibles there it's probably set off kind of as a kind of poetry He quotes Psalm 69, 25 to make his case. And what's interesting is that Peter is now interpreting the Old Testament scriptures like Jesus did. If you'll remember at the end of Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said that everything written about me in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Peter, I think he's reading the Old Testament now like Jesus and like Jesus taught him. Peter recognizes that David was a type and shadow of what was to come in full in Jesus Christ. So when the the Psalms spoke of David and the events that were taking place in his life, um, they were also speaking or pointing forward, prefiguring what would unfold in Jesus' life. So Peter recognizes this. And and this is, by God's grace, the kind of preaching that we'll seek to do from the Old Testament, especially the, the book of Psalms. We want to show how they point to Jesus Christ. And if you want to think through about how the Old Testament does point to Jesus Christ, let me just remind you of the announcement we heard earlier. That's what the the adults are thinking about in in Sunday school, uh, downstairs at 9.30 in the fellowship hall. You should endeavor to read the Old Testament as as a Christian, and as Jesus taught his disciples to do. The, The Bible really is one grand story of how God, in Jesus Christ, is restoring his people to his place under his rule Blessing, to steal a line from uh, Graham Goldsworthy and Vaughn Roberts, and you you want to seek to understand the scriptures in that way, how they point to Jesus. But Peter doesn't just stop there concerning Judas. He also sees how the Psalms teach us that another apostle needs to be appointed. So he quotes from Psalm 109, verse eight. Peter views Judas' betrayal and gruesome death as necessary, but the scriptures also teach that someone must replace Judas and take up the calling as the 12th apostle and this scene it's doing something else too it's preparing us for Peter being a faithful interpreter of scripture as we come to the event of Pentecost as well but it's important for us to recognize that this is necessary preparation for the reconstitution of God's kingdom just as there were 12 tribes 12 heads of tribes in the kingdom of Israel so there will be 12 heads 12 apostles in the kingdom of Jesus Christ and notice It's not just some random guy that can be chosen to serve as an apostle. There's a criteria for apostleship. We see it here. There's a necessary criteria in verses 21 and 22. The apostle needs to be a man. There are certainly women present among them. But the disciples recognize that teachers of God's word and God's church are to be men. So he needs to be a man. Not only that, he had to have been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. Up to this very moment now. Which means this man is going to need to have seen, uh, personally seen, the risen and resurrected Jesus Christ. That's going to be directly tied to his duty as an apostle. They're not simply to be witnesses to Jesus, but especially to his resurrection. So Peter, he's he's echoing Jesus. He reminds us the apostles will be witnesses here. And and one of the things that I found fascinating uh, about this portion of Acts... Is that on the surface, it looks like this company is choosing another apostle. But if you look closely at the text, it's actually Jesus choosing the next apostle. So just skip back up to verse 2. Notice there that we see that Jesus chose apostles. But then if you, if you take a look at verse 23, you'll notice that these two men are put forward. These are two men who meet this criteria. They're put forward. But then what does the gathered company do? They pray. And they asked Jesus to choose. So verse 24. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, and by that they mean the Lord Jesus, you, Lord, um, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two men, men—sorry, uh, which one of these two you have chosen to take place, take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And this, of course, is it's followed by the casting of lots. And clearly this gathered company of believers, uh, they, they, they don't think that this casting of lots is this is just going to happen by chance. They think that through this casting of lots, it's going to reveal the predetermined choice of Jesus. This one that you have chosen as the end of verse 24 says. So this is how Jesus is going to make his will known concerning who should who his apostle should be. So what we're seeing here is through this exercise, Jesus' will is being done on earth even as he is in heaven. The lot falls to Matthias and because he is the apostle whom Jesus chose, he takes up that office. Now, uh, this is one of these things uh, that we're gonna come across often in the book of Acts. We're gonna see a number of things in the book of Acts that are unique to, to that period of redemptive history. In other words, we're not gonna see uh, certain things repeated uh, in, in our lives as Christians today so we don't we don't choose apostles over and over and over again uh, just like Jesus didn't ascend into heaven over and over and over again now these are, are things that are unique that occur once kind of in redemptive history and have significance and what's happening here is Jesus is establishing the foundation of the church if you remember from uh, Ephesians chapter 2 we learned that Jesus and the prophets and the apostles with him With him are the foundation of the church. And the church is now being built up. So we're in this area of the church or the house of God being built up. But this foundation is being laid of Jesus being the cornerstone. With the prophets and the apostles with him. So there are some things in the book of Acts that are going to be unique and special to this period of redemptive history. That Acts is recounting. But there are also going to be things in the book of Acts that we should actually do over and over and over again. Such as pray. And pray for leaders in our church family. So when we, when we contemplate recognizing uh, a man to serve as an elder in our congregation, we should pray and ask the Lord Jesus to make it clear uh, if he should serve among us. This is a wonderful thing for us to do. Well, uh, as we conclude, it's appropriate for us to step back and see that Jesus' disciples, that he's prepared them for mission. And they're prepared because uh, Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem, to remain there, to wait, to receive the fulfillment of the Father's promise, the Holy Spirit. Jesus prepared them to be witnesses uh, to the ends of the earth. And these disciples, they also prepared for their mission of taking Jesus' name to the end of the earth. Uh, They returned to Jerusalem. They regathered. They rededicated themselves to prayer and waiting. They prayed until something happened. Uh, They reflected on the scriptures. They reorganized the apostolic band And so their story is to be continued. It will continue in Acts chapter 2. But what about our story? What about your story? Have you embraced the mission of Jesus? Have you delighted and received as your own the one who came to save his people from their sins? Are you engaged in continuing and furthering the mission of Jesus? Are you pouring out effort to further the mission of Jesus to save his people from their sins? Are you pouring out effort, whether that be through prayer or through personal proclamation? How is your story as a witness for Jesus to be continued? How will it continue this week? Perhaps as we conclude in prayer, we should pause and quietly reflect upon what maybe the Lord has before us to begin taking his name to the ends of the earth this coming week. Let's just take a few moments and quietly reflect upon that now, and then I'll close this in prayer.